This is the Talk Magazine podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of Diaspora Dialogues. DD helps emerging writers turn their craft into a career through mentorship programs, professional development seminars, and public talks and conversations. We record our events in order to bring the best of Canadian writing and thinking to you through this series. In this episode, writers Derek Mascaranis, Anara Lee, and moderator Shanda Dezeal discuss their writing process for their books, Coconut Dreams and Night of Power, and the importance of sharing diverse narratives. Derek Mascaranis is one of four children born to parents who immigrated from Goa, India, and settled in Burlington, Ontario. A backpacker who has traveled across six continents, Derek currently resides in Toronto, where he balances his creative pursuits with a career in market intelligence. His short story collection, Coconut Dreams, was released to acclaim in April 2019. Anara Lee was born in Tanzania and raised in Alberta. Her first book, Baby Khaki's Wings, a collection of short stories, was a finalist for the Trillium Book Award, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and the Danita Gleed Literary Prize. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, and the Little Brown Reader, among others. She holds an MFA from the University of British Columbia. Her second book, Night of Power, debuted in August 2019. Okay, so I'm going to read from my book, Coconut Dreams, and it's told from the perspectives of two siblings, Ali and Aidan Pinto, a sister and a brother. I'm just going to read one scene from the story Picking Trilliums from Allie's perspective and then one from uh, Aiden's perspective. But uh, both of the kids are in, are in both stories. So this one's called Picking Trilliums. Only when we're the last ones left on the bus ride home does Aiden talk to me. Between bumps that send us bouncing slightly in our seats, he turns to me and asks, Why were you late today, Allie? Tommy girl wanted to see my feet, I say. And why did that make you late? Aiden takes an orange left over from lunch out of his bag. He bites it with his bottom teeth to break the skin and starts peeling it. Mrs. Bissette made me dust the chalk brushes before I left, I tell him, and hold up my hands as proof. They're dried white by the chalk, like I've switched hands with an old person. I rest them by my sides so I don't get chalk on my skirt. But why did your teacher keep you? Aiden peels the orange skin off in a spiral, like a pig's tail. Tommy Girl wouldn't stop bothering me, so I kicked him in the stomach. I think my brother will be happy that I've stuck up for myself, but he stops peeling the orange and shakes his head. Allie, you're not going to make any new friends if you go around kicking people. But it's not my fault. That meanie kept asking me if my toes were brown, too. And I don't want to be Tommy's friend anyway. It isn't fair. I used to have a best friend named Sarah in my class. She had a gray cat named Smoke and like dill pickle chips, too. But she moved away when her dad got a new job in Peterborough. I still don't know where that is. A few weeks later, we got Tommy Grow in our class. Aiden says, Tommy's probably only curious. Next time, tell him your feet are the same color as the rest of you. Aiden splits the orange he peeled in two and offers me half. I shake my head, then pick at the piece, a piece of dark green sticky tape that covers a hole in the back seat ahead of us. You said you'd protect me. With orange slices still in his mouth, Aiden quickly says, I will. He swallows and adds, I'll talk to Tommy tomorrow. Tomorrow's a field trip. Then the day after. I nod my head, feeling better. Did anyone ever ask to see your feet when you were in grade two? I ask. Worse. The boys asked about what color my you-know-what was. He points at his crotch. And the girls, the girls wanted to feel my soft brown ears. Aiden smiles his slow smile, like honey being poured. It's impossible not to smile with him. And don't worry, Alley Cat. I won't tell Mom. We'll just rinse your hands in the garden hose before we get go inside. I forgot about Mom. I'd be in big trouble at home if I got in small trouble at school. She always put our education first. It's a good thing she won't found it, find out tonight, or she might not let me go on my field trip tomorrow. I'll tell her after that. I think she'll be on my side anyways. She was the last time something like this happened. It was during Black History Month when we learned about Rosa Parks not sitting at the back of the bus. 
I found it strange how she, how she wanted to sit at the front. Everyone I know fights for a spot at the back of the bus. I asked Mrs. Bissett, where would I sit on the bus back then? I don't know, she snapped. It's not an appropriate question. When I told mom, she said it was a perfectly fine question and agreed with me that maybe I'd sit somewhere in the middle like I do now. Okay, so I'm going to read just a quick scene from another story, and this is told from uh, Aiden, the little boy's perspective. It's called The Elephant in the Mountain. While my parents were getting ready to leave for the funeral home, I held my eight-month-old baby brother, Eric. My sister, Allie, was playing peekaboo with him over my shoulder. The person who had died had been my mom and dad's driving instructor when they'd first come to Canada. Dad was tying his black dress shoes in the foyer, and Mom was at the hallway mirror putting cream on her face. Remember, the O'Briens are home next door, she said, and the emergency numbers are on the fridge. Mom always worried about emergencies. She kept baking soda next to the stove and had so many flashlights in the house that Allie and I prayed for a blackout so we could use them for once. Dad said to Mom, we should get going, putting on a suit jacket. Mom put on her jacket as well, gave each of us a kiss, and followed Dad out the door. Halfway out, she turned and said, And don't answer the door if it's not someone you know. Then she closed the door and locked it from the outside. Before Eric, when she and Dad left us home alone, Mom used to say, If a stranger comes, just tell them, My mom's in the shower. But then one time, couple carrying Bibles came to the door. When the man asked if our mother was, a, was home, Allie said, she's in the shower. The woman asked if our father was available. Allie had been surprised by this question and glanced over at me. I panicked and said, he's in the shower too. The man and the woman eyed each other and said they'd come back. Thank you. All right, uh, Anar will uh, read from your book, which um, is described as a portrait of a Muslim family from the heady days in Uganda to the hard times in a new country and the tragic accident that forces them to confront the ghost of the past. None other than Lawrence Hill called it a searing and beautiful novel. With a perfect pitch, the story glides between the perspectives of father, mother, and son. It is an honest and utterly engaging meditation about love and loss tenderness and violence, adaptability and delusion, dislocation and rebirth. If you'd like to tell us more and read from it, that'd be great. Sure. Thanks, and it's so great to be here and to be reading with Derek. So let me tell you just a little bit about the book. Shanda did a great job. I think that I just want to tell you that The Night of Power, the book itself or the story is set over five days, and the central day is a night called The Night of Power. And The Night of Power is a really important day for Muslims because it's the day that the uh, first chapters of the Quran were first revealed to the Prophet. So it's a really important night because it's a really powerful night. If you pray all night, it's like praying for a thousand nights. And it's important to the story also because it's a night where you can act, it's a night of mercy and forgiveness, and the, your fate for the year is sealed. And this is the day that uh, Shanda mentioned a tragic accident happens. So I won't say too much more. I'll just read from a couple of sections. The book moves between flashbacks and present day. The present day is moving towards the night of power. And the flashback is we go back to each of the different characters' lives. The parents, Mansur and Layla, as well as their adult son, Ashif. Ashif lives here in Toronto. He's a big Bay Street kid, and uh, his parents live in Calgary. So I'm going to start with a short flashback of Layla's and then move into the present day. Layla arrived at Vienna International Airport with a suitcase in one hand and Ashif's hand in the other. He was close to two and now walking and talking. Almost a year after they first arrived in London, she received a letter from Mansour telling her that he was at an interim camp in Austria. He had sent the letter through a man at his camp who had relatives in London. The man's cousin, Farida, spent months making inquiries before she finally found Layla and Ashif. At first, Farida thought she had found the wrong woman, but the woman I'm looking for only has one child, 
not two, she said, pointing to the bulge in the blanket tied across Layla's body like a baby sling. No, no, Layla said, opening the blanket to reveal the hot water bottle she used to stay warm. It's me only, Layla Visram. At the airport, she spotted Munzer behind the glass wall of the crowded meeting area with his briefcase between his feet. He was wearing his wedding suit, the one he only wore at their anniversary parties. He had on the metal-tipped shoes, too. It was only when she pulled Ashif closer that she realized how much weight Munzer had lost. The suit hung on him like a blue gunny sack. Her heart sank as if into a swamp. What had happened to her husband? Munzer raised his arms above his head and frantically waved at them, and her heart lifted. She pulled Ashif by the wrist and ran to him. Munzer reached first for his son. Look at you, Munzer kneeled down, his eyes filled with tears. You're such a big boy. Mommy, Ashif screamed and locked his arms around his mother's knees. Munzer pried his son away from her, despite his kicks and screams, and pressed him tightly to his chest. Papa is so happy to see you. He only returned him to Layla when people in the waiting room shot him dirty looks. He just needs some time to get used to things, Layla said, though she needed time too. She barely recognized him either. You're right, he said, and he put his arm around her. Come, let's go. He then told her he'd made all the arrangements for their new life. They were booked on the first flight to Montreal tomorrow morning. They were moving to Canada. He never asked her how she coped alone in London at the camp, and when she tried to ask him about his final days in Uganda and his camp in Austria, she, he just shook his head. What's the use of talking about the past, Layla? That night, they stayed at a small inn near the airport. When they made love, she could feel the bones of his ribcage. And I'm just going to move to the present, and this is actually the very beginning of the book. Munzer Visram wakes to a fluting sound, a distant melody like a musin's call. He half opens his eyes. Dark fields extend to the horizon and merge seamlessly with the night sky, a perfect circle. The prairie hills are massive frozen waves. He feels something at his feet. He lifts his head. A small dome shape bobs up and down at his feet, hammering at his icy body. The bird flies up and hovers over his chest. Her body is brilliant blue, her crown golden. Her breast is plump and glazed with rhinestone tassels instead of feathers. Munzer is amazed that she can fly. He swipes the air and tries to catch her, but she flies up and out of reach. He plants his hands on the snow and struggles to stand, his veins a map of frozen rivers. The bird flies ahead of him and waits, like a siren willing him forward. A few steps, and he falls to his knees. His clothes are an armor of ice. In the distance, the city lights are a pale smudge in the sky. He tries to stand again, but his body jars, like a ship caught in icy waters. Get up, Visram, he orders himself. Move. Instead, he falls, curls into the soft snow, and drifts off again. The bird lands on his shoulder. She nudges her way up to his ear and begins to sing. That's it. Thank you. All right, well, let's um, maybe start with some get-to-know-you questions, specifically how you guys became writers. I know for you and R, there was some other stuff beforehand, another career. But Derek and uh, Derek, we can sort of talk about if this was, you know, a straight, uh, a straight line for you or a twisted journey as well. Yeah, so definitely a twisted journey. <laughs> yeah, it, was, uh, it started first off with... Um, just as a child, of the love of, of reading and um, a love of stories and a love of hearing stories from, from elders. And so that, that was kind of the, the heart of it. But I kind of had a bit of a detour in, I guess, in high school. I didn't, I didn't really identify with a lot of the, the works that I was reading. And I kind of got turned. It's funny because a lot of writers have like an English teacher that they love in high school. And like, I, I did not have that at all. And I kind of got turned off literature 
in, in general. And um, it wasn't until later that I started being able to like searching out my own books and books that I felt interested in. Because we, I think you can have a bit more choice now, but back then you're kind of forced to read what you had to, to read and uh, write about it. Once I uh, kind of started, I, I fell back into and in love with, with stories. And my, my two characters, my two main characters, uh, Ali and Aiden, they were definitely the, the, the impetus for, for this collection. Everything I, like every single scene I started to write, it, it involved them and um, it just kind of went from there. So what was the first book that you read that inspired, like you felt like, oh, this is something that I get because you weren't reading things that were feeling like you connected to, but do you remember the first book or thing that you read that felt like, yeah, this is, I, I get it and I love literature again? It was definitely books from the, from like Indian writers who were like, uh, I know Sharani is one, um, Rohinton Mystery, uh, Kiran Desai, Jhumpa Lahiri. Like um, when I discovered there was that like seeing yourself or your culture in, in a story, it was just, it helped. It yeah. Okay. So had you gone to school for something else then? And, or yes. Yeah, really? What did yeah. you go for then? Uh, I went to, actually it was similar to, I went to, I started off in engineering and then I went to business and then um, it was afterwards that I kind of, with that I realized I wanted to pursue this. So I went back and did um, some courses at UFT um, in, in creative writing. And, and then, uh, then I just fell in love with it again. Nara, what about you, for people um, who don't know? Sure. Um, the short version is, I mean, because <laughs> it's long, I, yeah. I think Shanda knows that. But similar to Derek, but I think, you know what, I was going to say, I did a BCom, worked in the business world for a while, come from a business family, always had written as a child, but lost it for quite a while too, and stopped reading, just like you, for a long time. So that's, I was interested in hearing what you were going to say. And for me, the first book that I discovered that really con I connected to writing again was Shyam Salvadori's Funny Boy. And, you know, I, I tell this story about how I was working in the business world and at Procter & Gamble, had come, you know, having a very different life. And I saw this pamphlet literally on the floor or on the street, and it was about the Alberta Writers Union conference in Banff. And on that pamphlet was the face of Shyam Salvadori. And I literally was blown over. I was like, what? I don't even understand how this is possible because I'd never until then seen a person of color being an author. So I went to the conference and I luckily met Shyam and he was really lovely. And he, I told him that I was thinking I'd always thought I would want to be a writer. And he wrote to me in his book, Dear Anar, take the plunge, it's worth it. And what a fool I was. I took it literally. <laughs> so that was Saturday. And then on Monday, I went into my boss and said I wanted to quit. And of course, they thought it was crazy. And then it's a longer story, but that's the short version. How then did film and TV make its way in? Is that, uh, you know, at the same time as you were doing, around the same time as your short story collection came out? How did that kind of dovetail in with your writing and your a new career? Yeah, I mean, you know, I... Film and TV came later. I was uh, living in Mexico writing this book, and I'd moved to Mexico partly because I wasn't, uh, like a lot of writers or a lot of artists, wasn't able to quite juggle the job and working on the writing as a full-time thing. And I'm sure other people were able to, but I wasn't, and I ended up meeting some writers in Mexico, so I moved there. And the book was taking me longer than expected, and I had friends in film and TV, film actually, mm -hmm. who said, you should really think about it because of the way you write to think about film. But same thing, I was like, no, I can't even imagine this idea for myself. But then a friend told me about the Canadian Film Centre. For people who don't know, it's this really great space uh, that Norman Jewison, along with other people, started. And it's like a six-month boot camp. Hard to get in. Luckily, luckily, I got in. And... That really helped me set the foundation for film. And then I started realizing as a, as, a, as a writer, TV is also very interesting because that's where writers have a lot of control over story, unlike in film. Which is a director's medium. Which is a medium. director's medium. Yeah. And, when, you know, and it's a great, yeah, so that's kind of where it went. Okay. That's where it started. Well, let's talk a bit about sort of genre and form and format. Derek... Um, as the uh, 
we saw the panel before and we talked about backstage, uh, like Zalika Banana Reed, you have a linked short stories and I'm sure some people, I think even in some of the reviews have called it novelistic. <laughs> I think there is some tension there and you are sort of challenging the short story form with these linked stories. When you were looking at it and reading it, was it very, did those lines blur at all? Yeah, they, yeah. they definitely did. Um, I almost take that as a compliment because it's uh, the link short story collection just it, for someone to say that it reads like a novel is because there's for the longest time it it was a mess like <laughs> I, it it's anyone who writes uh short stories like i have a lot of respect for um just because it's such a, a hard medium uh, like i love the the form but it's like everything is just condensed and every, like every word matters and and then on top of that to write a, a linked short story collection it's it's difficult because you have to, I, at least I, I wanted each story to be able to stand on its own, to be strong enough to stand on its own. But then when you put them together, it's, it just gets really complicated. And especially when you're working with children and children that age. Yeah. So the, the, their voices change and their scope of knowledge changes like as the stories move along. There's so many times when like I had a story there and then like I realized like, oh no, like Ali can't be that, that young. And then after like, move, and then it just messes everything, something else up. And, so yeah, looking back, it, I don't know if I would have done it as a, a link collection, but, it, but I, I don't think, I can't picture it any other way now. And mm. yeah, I'm, I'm just um, not seeing it now. It's, it's, it's something that, uh, I'm just glad it, it, it all came together. Well, did it ever, because as a reader, you can't see it any other way too. Like there's so much symmetry with what happens in the first story set in Goa and uh, what happens, you know, sort of throughout the novel with the different relatives and then the end story where Aiden goes back to that same village and yeah i can't imagine it like not linked and it works beautifully so for anar you're you know when i was reading this of course i'd read i read your collection of short stories first and then was so excited to see these characters return from the story that was was one of in in the collection so obviously this one is also going across genres and in fact i think you also at the Canadian Film Center may have written a film, a short film or a film that follows similar storylines. So how did you approach this? What, how can these characters sort of um, work in all these different genres? I don't know if I even have a solid answer for that because, you know, I think part of the writing is it's such an iterative process. So you start writing, like the, this novel was birthed from a short story, collect, a st- short story like Shanda said. So that was the basis of it. But I'd also, when Penguin bought my first book, they also bought the second book, Unwritten, which sounds fantastic, but <laughs> isn't necessarily. <laughs> because you're now like charged with this writing of a novel, and you're like, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? So for me, it was really kind of going to the story that I felt most compelled in. Actually, I felt close to all those stories in a different way. But that story felt like I could do something broader with it and kind of carry it over a longer period. That was part of it. That was the start, the short story. But the other thing, the, the first part that I read to you, the prologue with Munzer on the field, that image has not changed in all the years it took me to write this book. It's always been there. I always had this image of a man on a field, frozen, a bird trying to wake him up. So I kind of decided to follow that. So I think with novel, what I've, and even in short story in general, unlike, for instance, in TV, you really end up just following the thread and letting the characters speak to you. That's why it can take so long, because they're so stubborn, some of them. <laughs> At least mine seem to all be so very stubborn. And whereas in TV, I think, or in film even, because there's this really lovely thing that happens is if you're collaborating with the right people, you can really progress the story in a way that you wouldn't have on your own. And that could be a negative possibly, but I feel like in many ways I've been lucky mostly in film and TV and working with people who really are on simpatico and you can like move the story ahead. Yeah. And how great of you to be able to sort of, you know, to work in all those genres, but also to work collaboratively and then in solitude (laughs) must be, you know, if you get bored of one, you can go to the other. Yeah. You both speak so you know, passionately about these characters, and they really are vivid and relatable and recognizable. You know, tell us, um, how did these characters come to you, and what is so special about them to you? 
Yeah, as I said, like Ali and Aiden, they're a brother and sister, and they they were the they came to me first, and they were really the driving force behind the book. And what I felt was, I think they have a unique perspective, just because they so they grow up in Burlington, Ontario, in the '90s and in early uh, 2000s. But uh, at that time, one of um, like very few few minorities in in Burlington, like they so they're they're class, like they're they're the only the only non-white person in there. Um, so it definitely shapes their perspectives. And they, they learn very, very kind of early on about like power dynamics. And they, they learn about being like othered and they learn to navigate that space. And it, and it affects them like as you can see in like the later stories and when, when they're adults. I hadn't seen a, a book like that. And that was part of the impetus to, to write it, to write something that like, I would, in many ways, this is the book I would, would, would want to read when I was a kid. Tell us more about uh, Mansur and Layla and Ashif. Sure. You know, I'm always interested in understanding history and how it impacts us now. And the community I come from has Indian roots, but ended up in Africa, in Zanzibar and East Africa. And then the Idi Amin thing of 1972, where all Indians were expelled from the country, kind of set a new course out for Indians. So that's why uh, many ended up, for instance, here in Canada or a few in the U.S. And ironically, just a tangent, that even back then in the 70s and 80s, where we thought that maybe the wor- we feel the world has changed and America has always been so open to, for instance, refugees. But if you look at the numbers at that period, it was still a country like Canada that was the most open. And of course, Trudeau was also had his multiculturalism policies in place. So it really changed the course of the history of the country and also the world. But I was also interested in mapping that out for myself and trying to understand how that affected particularly families. Because a lot of times when we're thinking about refugees or immigrants, we're often thinking about how are they going to make it? What job are they going to make? You know, how are they going to, the money they're going to have? But for me, I'm also interested in saying, well, if someone was someone back there and now they're here and they can't be that person anymore, what does that do to them? So at the core, I think the book asks what happens to you when you can't be who you want to be. And so that question, I think, is a universal question because we all grapple with it because of societal changes or societal pressures, family, community, even ourselves. So those are some of the ideas that I was thinking about, not so clearly as I am now, because, of course, you're writing it and you're just in this muddle. But I did know that I wanted to write something that was rooted somehow in my own history and my own family history around the East Africa thing with with the intention of understanding myself more. Well, one thing that I that was in both of your books and so clearly set out as the son in both Ashif and uh, Aiden, they express this sort of feeling of not belonging, uh, perpetually in limbo in the night of power, wearing a mask, untethered even to their own body, but a real a cultural identity issue. And then in Derek's, you know, you're not till the end where Aiden really talks about that. You know, he's pretty young before, but as he is in university in engineering, he does say that they called him a coconut, brown on the outside, white on the inside. And, and it was later on that he actually began to feel it was true. And now what is it about sort of identity and especially first generation Canadian identity that sort of means something to you that really drove you to explore it? here in these books? I think, especially with kind of immigrant families um, and people who are traveling and you're taking one culture and trying to, there's some, you're trying to assimilate. Identity is, it's it's an issue I think with, and it's a big, it plays a big part in a lot of people's lives. I know for like, for my characters specifically because of the situation they're, they're in, as I said, it, it, it affects the way they the way they learn, the way they grow, the way, the way they interact with each other and with with, with the family. But it, but it was it was interesting because it was yeah I definitely found some similarities between um, those yeah those two those two characters. Yeah. yeah, I think you know the thing about identity is it's really a universal idea, right? Like we all in some ways struggle with this idea of becoming ourselves at different points of our lives, and I think particularly for immigrant 
kids or immigrants, it's that the ache, that ache for home and finding your place is sometimes just a bit of a challenge if you're not seeing things around you that reflect you. So I was telling a friend this recently that my niece, I have, I have a big family, lots of nieces and nephews. And one of my nieces had posted on Instagram and then she sent it to me on WhatsApp. She had taken something from the book and circled it and said, never in my life have I related to something as much as this. Because it was so specific, right? It was so specific, this idea of uh, someone with these roots. She's born and raised in this country. She feels very Canadian, but she doesn't, hasn't seen herself in the media. So, you know, I think there's some natural thing we all feel as human beings, the desire for a mirror. You know, I, I remember watching recently on, I think it was a National Geographic or something, where elephants were like, had mirrors in front of them. And they spent all this time looking at themselves. So vain, you would say, maybe, but also really interesting because I think it's about just reflection. And so something that kind of is calming for us maybe as human beings when we see ourselves and something that we can say, oh, that's just like me. And that doesn't mean that we, we all are very, I mean, we're human beings, so there's all these things that are similar about us. But if you never see anything very specifically connected to you, it can be untethering. So I think that's kind of at the core of it is this ache for home and a f- trying to find a place for yourself. I definitely agree with, with that. And, and seeing yourself is like just so important, especially because like we, we have in both of us have said in the past, but even today, like we, we still live in like a, like a narrative that's more dominated by like white culture. And like, if you don't see yourself in, in movies and, and books and, and magazines and, and TV shows, then you, yeah, it, there is that feeling of, of less than. I love I loved that, just thinking of Canadian specifically, like I love that quote on the, or someone, um, I can't remember who it was, but on the back of yours, it said, this is like, it's a truly Canadian story. And it was like, yes, like this is, <laughs> it is. Well, that leads right into my next question, because one of my favorite sections in your book, NR, is when Monsieur is trying to decide where in Canada he would like to live. And he goes through the different Canadian cities. And just, it's a perspective that I've never thought of before of what, and I just had to, he found Montreal too much like Vienna, old European cities. He found Toronto with all the streets named after old battles and royal figures, war heroes. I just imagine him finding it you know, too British and staid. And I love what he said about uh, Vancouver and the maritime provinces. Too much beauty can lull a person into a false sense of well-being. It breeds laziness. It was but it was business-minded Alberta and Calgary that appealed to him. Where did you, uh, you know, where, what was the inspiration for this very Canadian passage? <laughs> for me, that particular passage, I think it's true when people come to the country, not always, but at least when my family came, my father had to make a decision about where we were going to go. And he'd bought the ticket all the way to Vancouver with this idea that, you know, the weather was milder, all of this stuff. But when he got to Calgary, I think he, I mean, he's never said this to me, but I'm assuming he must have felt a great affinity because Alberta is so business-minded. I mean, most immigrants were going to Toronto, right? Toronto, maybe Vancouver, but he decided he was going to stay, be here because I think in some ways he saw himself a little bit as a cowboy, you know, that kind of feeling of someone who's just going to go and make their mark in a place and where better to be a cowboy than Alberta. So. I think that that comes from that. But I also think that, you know, I've often thought that when you look across, I, because I grew up in Alberta, even coming to Toronto first, it took some time to get used to even just the geography. Like, you know, my, I found myself always stretching to see the sky. I lived downtown and I would feel as much as I liked Toronto, I felt like something about the geography wasn't matching me, but it was because I was missing the sky of Alberta. And so I think that whether it's conscious or unconscious, we're attracted to certain geographies and cities because they reflect us in some way. And Derek, I found in your book, you know, I wanted to know what Felix and Clara felt about their new home. We, you know, we get an idea of the siblings. They have this suburban upbringing, but yeah, where they were, this this what Felix and Clara expected? Is it, you know, somewhere they felt comfortable? We only see you know, a few certain moments of, it seems, you know, Felix really, you know, he loved hockey, he went bowling, he went to the Ikea opening, but 
you know, where they, they certainly their, their ideas around identity aren't expressed as well as the kids and their comfort in the new place. Yeah, it's definitely their, their story. Are you asking about like that's the setting or, or like why it would? I guess right? no. I no. just it's the, because you really focused on the siblings, but yeah, uh, yeah I want uh, I want another story okay. of Felix and Clara too. I guess I'm just putting in a request. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and well, maybe tell us about sort of place for you in a narrative. Do you, do you like to get really specific? Do you like to get be broad? How does it fit into your works? For this book. Most of it, so the first story and the last story is set in Goa, India. And then most of the in-between is set in Burlington, Ontario. And I tried to write it so that, well, I think the goal for any writer should be to, to write like a universal story. And you, you can do that with getting very specific on, on the place, I think. And for, like for this collection, I, there are certain streets, like some main streets are named in, in Burlington. And I'd imagine that most kids in Burlington kind of went, did like a field trip to, to Royal Botanical Gardens and fed the birds. But there, I, I tried to write it so that it could be any suburb or any kind of mostly white suburb um, that these kids were, were growing up in. Um, and then Goa is it, very congruent where it's set in a specific village, but I'm hoping it could be any, any village in Goa. Like the, I included like the the well in the backyard where you get water and like some of the old houses have like outhouses and the roofs are like the tiles are made these uh clay tiles that that sometimes like fall and shatter if like monkeys run on them and the the stones like the little red stones so I I tried to like I made it specific but I tried to make it so that it could be any village in, in Goa if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think it's almost time uh, to throw it out to a Q&A, but one question that I always like to ask is just to find out about, about a r- routines of writing and specifically where people write when you really get down to it. <laughs> it's pretty boring. I, I write at home mostly at a desk. Uh, occasionally I write in like a coffee shop or at the library, but, but mostly at home. I, I do tend to listen to music when I write. Usually yes. a song on repeat. But yes, yeah. tell, tell us more about song on repeats, because uh, that seems, some people I think would find that distracting from uh, their writing. But I, I find it very it free because right? it, it works, yeah, just without them on, it just, I feel, I hear the distractions, but with yeah. it on, it just kind of, you get in this loop. But, what, but yeah, on re like you don't get tired of the one no. song. <laughs> it just kind of fades into the background eventually. Okay, yeah. right. And where do you write in there? Well, I was going to say, so strange, I do that too, but only when I'm in a difficult place in the writing, I'll put the same songs on. But for this particular book, it was, it oscillated between Yo-Yo Ma playing the Bach concerto, the cello concertos, or Daft Punk. So I don't understand that. And I wasn't even drinking while I was doing that. It just Wait, happened. Which like, Daft Punk? Anything Daft okay. Punk, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I tend to write at home too because, you know, because I work now in TV and you're in a writing room with people, it's like can, it has its own kind of energy and, uh, but also exhaustion. So I think for me, like when I'm alone, I just want to be alone. And so it's in, in a writing room. I have a room that's dedicated to it and it's a mess and I just keep it that way unless I'm moving between projects and then I clean up. Um, and maybe quickly, you guys, I did ask you if you had questions for each other. So um, what is, when you, you know, looked at uh, what Anar wrote, what was the sort of burning question for you? Uh, so the one, I had a lot. So I love the way you like weaved in the past and the present and the different perspectives. So part of me wanted to know like how you did that <laughs> or the process of doing that, whether you did it all, all the linear, all the present uh, at once or then moved back and forth. And then if I could ask one more, <laughs> just around like inheritance and like, because I, I think I felt that was a, a big theme in your book and like what, what is inherited just more generally? Big questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first one about past and present, you know, that was the most difficult part of the book because for people who don't know the book, it's just, it's the present day, like I mentioned, the night of power, we're moving towards a night of power. The son, Ashraf is coming home on his way for, to a business meetings. He's only going to stay at home for an hour. Clearly, he doesn't want to be at home. You know, they all have different perspectives on this. But 
I was really clear that I wanted that past in there. And so part of the reason it took me so long was trying to work those things out because, you know, it was almost like a linear narrative, but you had to go circular down into the flashbacks and then having three perspectives and three different flashbacks. So I don't know if I have a formula for it, except that a lot of rewriting. And the one thing that I really learned from film, which has been so helpful, is storyboarding. And that's where you map out scenes. And I I have photographs of, of my place in Mexico, the room I wrote in, where it had like basically like all these like maps of the novel. But other than that, I also had printed out the entire novel and pasted it around the house Mm -hmm. so that I could kind of follow it and actually understand what was going on because it became too complex for me. So that's the first. And then inheritance, I think that that's a really good question. I think it's a longer discussion, but the nutshell for me in the book I think each of them has different ideas. Munzer is really desperate. He's the father. He's desperate for to give his son a sense of legacy in the way that maybe a man of his generation would be, which is a business or some sort of like something related to him and his own history. And for Layla, I think her inheritance is, which is a sense of like a sense of caring and love that if her children can carry, feel that they love they felt loved and accepted, that is what is going to carry forward. And she does it through food. And for Ashif, he's very lost, and he doesn't actually know what any of this means. Well, I have to better check with the audience if they have questions. Yeah. And if not, we'll go to yours. And our, anyone? Yeah, there's parts to enjoy about each writing process. The beginning is always, I think, you feel the best, <laughs> or at least for me. Just because it's new and exciting, and you're, it always, in your mind, it just, it, it's such a good story. <laughs> and then later you realize that, like, the editing, that, that you need to, a lot, it needs a lot of work and you need to work on it. And finally, like, getting it right, not, not even if it doesn't get published per se, but just knowing that you finally got a story right, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great feeling as well. I think for me, I actually find the beginning super hard. Yeah, I find that I always know what the end of a story is, which sounds a little bit crazy, but even in this book, I always knew certain things and none of that changed. So it was like working backwards was challenging. So for me, I think the best part for me is actually strangely, not many writers say this, is the editing. I love when it's all down and then I just want to go and chisel and chisel and chisel. I find that really lovely. But that freefall writing is, maybe it feels like you're in an ocean without any barriers. And I prefer just to be in a big swimming pool and so that I know where the sharks are, you know. I did a lot of research because, you know, I have, even though the book is set in Uganda, I'd never been. I have a brother-in-law from there. So I spent a lot of time doing two kinds of research, speaking to people, including my brother-in-law. And then also I spent a lot of time at the British Library, they have these wonderful archives of newspapers from like anywhere you want, especially colonial countries that they, they've once ruled. So Uganda was one of them. So I did that. So I think those two things really uh, helped. But I think at the end, also, the story will find its shape on its own. So I think it's like putting fodder into the story. And yeah, if that made sense. I think for me, the so the stories, the ones in relation, they're, they're set in the kind of world that my siblings and I grew up in. So there, it was a world I was familiar with. The book is definitely fiction and the, the stories are fiction. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of research, I found it, the first story was, was really challenging because it was set in the 40s and 50s in, in Goa. And obviously I wasn't alive then. So I had to yeah, talk, to, talk to people who, who, were, who, who were in that era and... Um, it, the weirdest like things you don't even think about come up like did they have cars or like was there a hospital that you could drive through because someone got hurt and then yeah just it was so part of it happens like as you write and like a question comes up and you're like oh i need to google this or and if you can't find it on google you need to find another way to to find it out any other questions yes so my or my two main characters are, are born in canada but um they 
they kind of they definitely have a it's kind of a weird situation because they've never been one of them has been when he was uh very young but doesn't remember it um so he those memories come from from the parents and from that culture seeps in from other places well like one a couple of those stories or maybe like three or four of the stories i have ali naden with with their uncle and aunts and they're not like re- related to them but and i think that's the case with a lot of immigrant families because not everyone comes all together and it's kind of this weird just like you you can get that those memories and that culture from different places and those are actually some of the most enjoyable stories to to write because they the the kids are kind of learning from the the aunts and uncles but also they're realizing that they they're different than their their aunts and uncles yeah the memories that are missed from back home is that kind of the question when I think, of, right, right, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, one of the, my favorite memories of growing up was Saturdays or, uh, with my, my father, actually, because he was, uh, he's quite a sportsman, and he would be like, so we'd wake up really early, and we'd go to what was the Aga Khan Swimming Club, and then go to the library after. And for someone like me who was a big reader, there was nothing better than that. But then they'd always be followed with like, like a really great meal. It sounds simple. Those that could happen here, right? But I think it was just also the again back to the geography, that feeling of the air and the light and the sky that really like stayed with me. But what's really interesting, I think that over time, the geography of particularly Alberta is really more in my blood now. Like so, you know, the uh, the artist Michael Snow says, I think it's Michael Snow. He says that he has dream. He has a he dreams of like a certain geography. And I think he says he dreams of snow, if I don't have it wrong. And I feel like for me, when I dream of like the geography that I feel closest to is the sky of Alberta. But in many ways, the sky of Alberta is very similar to the sky of Kenya and Tanzania. In, so that's an esoteric answer, but um, that's how it feels. Yes, in the back. It was kind of a... A bit of a weird process. Like I, I know with it's difficult to uh, with short stories. You often hear like, "Oh, they don't sell them. Publishers don't want them." I kind of I got a bit like because I just ended up. I didn't go like the Asian route. I just met with. I kept on meeting publishers at events and then talked to them and kind of. Did it help to have the award? I guess you'd won some awards or nominated for some awards. Like, did that help to? Yeah, I guess so. But I think it. Yeah, so the schooling definitely helped, like having knowing that your stories have been workshopped and um, like thoroughly read and like edited and edited and edited, and then like it, it's definitely a long process to get to that point where you're ready to to send it out. But I think at some point you you reach a point where you you yeah you need to <laughs> you tell us uh, push it out there. So it, it regularly can depend. There's no like one one path. I think it's a different for everybody with um, how long it it takes. But I, the main thing is just persistence and to keep at it and and keep because there's with writing there's so much rejection, especially with like short stories. You're used to sending them out and then getting rejected and um, sending them out again. So yeah, just persistence is probably the the key thing that I'd stress. Yeah, and I was just add to that. Well. I remember a professor of mine at uh, UBC saying that for every 10 to 15 things you send out, you should expect, if you get one back that says, yes, you're doing really well. But that's hard, right, to take all the time. But I think it's true of all art forms is that the level, it's kind of, I think that's why the, the persistence and the, the kind of the strength isn't coming only from talent, but it's this ability of just to keep going. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, for me, I came to my writing late. And then I made a decision to go and do my MFA at UBC because I knew I needed some structure for my, to, to write and learn writing in many ways. So after I graduated, I, um, got, an, I got an agent and they, they're the ones who sold the book to my publisher. So long in many ways because I took a long time to come to the writing, but, within the, but I also went to a program that helped you get introduced to agents. And that was my route. 
Okay, time for an R's question then oh, sure. for Derek. Yeah, I, I had several, but the main one I was going to say is, you know, because we, for me, I was we were talking about home and identity, and your book does that too. I wanted to understand, like for you as a writer, where where do you feel your do you feel there's a place that you think of yourself that you feel the most comfortable and most at home? Could be a geography or something else. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, question. Yeah. I think I feel comfortable at different places. Like Goa will always be kind of like my ancestral home. And like I, the feeling you get there is it just, it's special. But uh, like Burlington will always be my hometown. And I have a really kind of complicated relationship with Burlington because I, like I, I love it in some ways. It's, it'll be my hometown. Like I have a connection there and like my parents and a couple of my siblings still live there, but I, I have a frustrating relationship with Burlington because, um, sure. yeah. And then t the last number of years, like Toronto, I, I feel I definitely feel like Toronto is, is my home and I, I would have a hard time picturing myself living somewhere else. So yeah, Toronto has, has become my, my home, yeah. And I think you also said sort of, in you, you touched on going to Goa, like what you, how has your travels influenced your writing? It came out of interesting time because um like like i journaled i found i was when i was traveling i i i didn't write like fiction but i was like just journaling a, a lot like just documenting like the day-to-day -day. and that and that definitely that definitely helped but in terms of like traveling i, I didn't honestly didn't get much like fiction writing it was more right. yeah it was more at home it's more it, it did help in terms of getting the, all those sensory details like the the market in in goa like <laughs> the craziness of that, like to be able to like stand there is yeah. that helped versus like trying to picture it, picture and, it or yeah. imagine it. Yeah. No, you, you were able to concretely. Yeah. You concretely yeah. drew from those. Okay. All right. I think that uh, we're done. I want to thank uh, the audience. Thank uh, Diaspora Dialogues for having us up here. And let you know that uh, Derek and Anar will be signing books uh, in the writer's area just uh, out and to the left so please go and see them and grab these books they're both wonderful thank you thank you we hope you enjoyed this program please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider if you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>